one. The nomination hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. I want to offer my congratulations to each of you and your nominations and express my appreciation for your willingness to serve. In the interest of time and getting to hearing from each of you and beginning questions quickly, I am going to forego an opening statement today. Senator Haggerty, would you like to make an opening statement before introductions, or should we proceed? Uh, I would make an opening statement if, uh, You're recognized. if, if I might. Mm -hmm. uh, likewise, I'd like to congratulate the nominees. Thank you for being here today. Um, it's an exceptional honor to be in the position that you're in. And for those of you that are going to be confirmed, I think you have a unique opportunity ahead of you to serve the most exceptional nation in the world. Uh, so I know you will take that to heart. Uh, I'd like to start with the nominee to be Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs. It's going to be a critical role here that you've got in terms of helping the administration navigate the Ukraine crisis. Russia's invasion of Ukraine spurred the largest conflict in Europe since World War II, and it continues to pose an enormous strategic challenge for the United States. Yet many Americans are wary of our administration's less than clear strategy in Ukraine. They're concerned about the growing cost of U.S. involvement, and they want to see all European nations, not just Britain, not just those that are more proximate to Ukraine, share the burdens of the alliance. The Biden administration needs to provide the American people a clear, realistic plan for victory in Ukraine. We've asked for it from this committee before, a plan that offers not only lasting solutions to the long-term security problems that we have in the region, but also one that protects Americans' interest. I'd like to turn to the nominee to be Ambassador to Croatia. The United States has played a key role in fostering Croatia's growth as a democratic, secure, and market-oriented society. We recognize Croatia as a dependable partner within the Euro-Atlantic institutions, and we greatly appreciate its constructive and stabilizing influence in the region. As a NATO ally since 2009, Croatia has partnered with the United States in operations in Afghanistan, Kosovo, Libya, and elsewhere. Croatia has also played a critical role in energy security through its LNG import terminal, which has helped minimize Europe's dependence on Russian oil, the dependence that's fueled Russia's war machine. Next, I'd like to turn to the nominee to be the ambassador to Haiti. Haiti is facing a seemingly intractable political and security crisis. The humanitarian catastrophe there has fueled massive migration from the country. The Biden administration will have to continue working closely with the international community to support Haitian efforts to restore security, the rule of law, and economic and social stability. And then last but certainly not least, I'd like to focus on the nominee to, US to be U.S. Ambassador to Guatemala. From its recognition of Taiwan, its solidarity with Ukraine, to its opposition with, to the Maduro regime in Venezuela, and its close ties to Israel, to its cooperation on trade, migration, and security, Guatemala has long been a critical U.S. ally in Latin America, and more specifically, in the critical Northern Triangle region. I traveled to Guatemala on my first official trip as United States Senator, and I had the president of meeting Guatemalan President Giamate. He's a great friend of the United States. President Giamate noted how waves of illegal migration pose demographic, economic, and social problems within his country. His own nation's sovereignty is under siege. He told me that thanks to the flood of humanity responding to the open border migration here in the United States, he's lost control of his own southern border. His nation's loss of stability and furthering a brain, is, is furthering a brain drain. It's disrupting families and local communities, and it's depriving his nation of foreign investment, modern infrastructure, and economic growth. All of this feeds a vicious cycle that engenders yet more mass migration and creates favorable conditions for transnational drug cartels. It allows them to exploit and traffic vulnerable migrants and smuggle deadly fentanyl and other drugs into our country. While concerns about corruption and election integrity are understandable, if you're confirmed, I hope you recognize Guatemala's critical importance for U.S. interest and work to maintain the United States' longstanding partnership with which 
Whichever candidate wins Guatemala's August presidential runoff election will be important. Again, to all of our nominees, thank you for serving our nation and for answering the questions of the committee today. I look forward to hearing your testimony. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Haggerty. Now I know several of my colleagues wanted to share introductions of some of our panel. And as usual, we, have, they, we all have tricky schedules given everything that's happening in the Senate today. Chairman Menendez, I can turn it over to you first. Well, th thank you, Madam Chair, to you and Senator Haggerty for conducting the hearing. One of our roles uh, as members of the committee is the responsibility to conduct nomination hearings. So I very much appreciate both of you taking time from your incredible schedules to do this. Uh, I want to uh, congratulate all of the nominees and their families, and thank you for your willingness to serve our country. I mention the families as well because this is a family affair. Uh, the reality is, is that uh, when you are called to serve abroad, uh, your family has sacrifices as well, so I want to acknowledge them. Uh, I want to take the moment to uh, say that it's my distinct pleasure to introduce Nathalie Reyes, the nominee to be the U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Croatia. Today, with dictators and autocrats working to undermine peace and freedom around the world, our nation needs to fill our diplomatic posts with leaders who are committed to protecting democracy and human rights. I believe that Nathalie Reyes's dedication to the defense of these basic universal principles is what the United States needs from our next ambassador in Zagreb. Nathalie was born in a small town in Venezuela and came to the United States when she was just nine years old. She didn't speak a word of English, but her mother, like my own mother, made tremendous sacrifices so that her daughter could get an education and thrive here in America. And with her support, Nathalie not only went on to UCLA, where she got her bachelor's and master's degree, she built an impressive and distinguished career as a leader, as a consensus builder, and an advocate. As the president and CEO of Latino Victory, President Biden's appointee to the board of the United States Institute of Peace, she has been an influential voice fighting to make the world a better place. She is no stranger to public service. She has served as Deputy Chief of Staff for the Mayor of Los Angeles, where she managed the Office of Intergovernmental Relations, International Trade, and Protocol. She established LA's first Office of Immigrant Affairs. She formed sister cities with San Salvador, Beirut, and Iscasaya in Italy. And she served as President Obama's appointee on the board of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Her experience, her record of leadership, and her strong people-to-people -people skills makes her the right candidate for this post. If confirmed, we can rest assured that Nathalie will stand up for her values and be a tireless advocate for democracy and human rights. So it's my pleasure to support the nomination of my good friend, Nathalie Reyes, as U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Croatia. I don't always come to the committee to introduce people, but in this case, uh, it's compelling to do so. Before I close, I'd like to note, Madam Chair, that I have received multiple letters in support of Ms. Reyes's nomination, including from former Congressman Lincoln Diaz Ballard, the Chairman of the Congressional Hispanic Leadership Institute, the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, the Aspen Institute Latinos and Society Program, among others. I ask unanimous consent that these letters be included in the record. Without objection. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Padilla, I will turn it over to you next. Uh, thank you, Madam Chair, Chairman Menendez, and Ranking Member Risch. Uh, today, I'm also proud to introduce my friend, Natalie Reyes, uh, as President Biden's nominee to serve as U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Croatia. 
Uh, as you heard from Menendez, I'll try not to be too repetitive, but uh, I do think it's important to underscore and emphasize she is the proud daughter of Venezuelan and Lebanese parents. As an immigrant herself, Ms. Reyes's career has been defined by an unwavering commitment to public service, a drive to diversify the highest levels of leadership in our nation, and a fundamental understanding of the hope and stability America's leadership brings to the world stage. But before it all, Ms. Reyes started off as a student in Los Angeles, where she earned her bachelor's degree in sociology and a master's degree in public policy with concentrations in international relations and education at UCLA. Natalie and I first crossed paths when I served on the Los Angeles City Council, and she served as deputy chief of staff for then Los Angeles Mayor James Hahn. There, she managed the Office of Intergovernmental Relations, International Trade and Protocol, and established, as you just heard, Los Angeles' first ever Office of Immigrant Affairs. Ms. Reyes went on to serve as Vice President of Public Affairs for Grupo Salinas in the United States and as Executive Director of Fundación Azteca América. She currently serves as the President and CEO of the Latino Victory Fund, where she worked to increase Latino representation at every level of government. Last year, the Senate confirmed Ms. Reyes to serve as President Biden's appointee to the Board of the United States Institute of Peace. At a time with increased conflict around the world, we can assure you somebody uh, who uh, uh, represents, embodies, and advances peace uh, through uh, diplomacy. In an effort to increase Latina representation in the field of international relations, Ms. Reyes founded and now chairs the HOPE Binational Advisory Group and created the Binational Fellowship to train 20 Latinas per year in the United States and Mexico. She's not only brought more opportunities to diverse communities, but she's also simultaneously strengthened our foreign policy workforce by bringing new ideas and new perspectives to challenge conventional thought. And America today is stronger for her service. Now, colleagues, since President Biden first took office, so much of the Senate's work to advise and consent to the president's nominees has seen the fundamental shift as we're finally confirming nominees who better reflect the diversity of the country they serve and represent. But that diversity of backgrounds and of thought shouldn't end with judicial nominees or cabinet officials. It must extend to those representing our nation on the world stage. Because how we present ourselves to the world and who we entrust with our nation's image and diplomatic duties abroad matters. I've seen Ms. Reyes' leadership up close from her time with the city of Los Angeles to her work nationally for a more inclusive democracy. She has the intellect, the expertise, and the commitment to do the job, not to mention the fundamental understanding of America's potential that will serve us well as U.S. Ambassador to Croatia. I urge my colleagues to join me in supporting her swift confirmation, and I thank you. Thank you, Senator Padilla. I'd also like to briefly introduce the other nominees on the panel today. Ambassador Dennis Hankins has been nominated to serve as Ambassador to the Republic of Haiti. Ambassador Hankins is a career member of the Senior Foreign Service and currently serves as the Foreign Policy Advisor to the National Guard Bureau at the Pentagon. He has previously served as Ambassador to Guinea and to Mali, and he has had a lengthy career in public service at the State Department and has included postings in Brazil, Sudan, Saudi Arabia, Thailand, and Haiti, to name just a few. Uh, 
Welcome, Ambassador Hankins, and we look forward to your testimony once all of the other introductions are complete. Next, let me introduce James O'Brien. Mr. O'Brien has been nominated to be Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs. He is currently serving as the Head of Office of Sanctions Coordination at the State Department, and he has previously served as the Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs and the Special Presidential Envoy for the Balkans, among many other roles across both public and private sectors. Mr. O'Brien, welcome, and we look forward to your testimony very shortly. Finally, I am pleased to introduce Tobin John Bradley, who has been nominated to serve as ambassador to the Republic of Guatemala. Mr. Bradley is a career member of the Senior Foreign Service and currently serves as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs. His time in public service has also taken him to post in Mexico, England, Jordan, and Iraq, in roles supporting our embassies and consulates, as well as with the NSC and our mission to NATO. Welcome, Mr. Bradley. I'll now turn it over to each of you to share your testimonies, beginning with Ambassador Hankins. Thank you very much. Madam Chairman, Ranking Member, and distinguished members of the committee, I'm deeply honored to appear before you today and grateful to President Biden and Secretary Blinken for the confidence they have placed in me as their nominee for ambassador to the Republic of Haiti. I want to thank my wife, Mira, and my son, Navy Lieutenant Commander Danu Hankins, for their encouragement, sacrifice, and support throughout the years. As diplomacy is inherently about relationships, my wife of more than 40 years has always been my better three quarters and the reason for whatever success I have had as a diplomat. I'm particularly honored that today's chairwoman and ranking member have separate titles of former public service near and dear to my heart, that of Lieutenant Colonel in the Army National Guard and of Ambassador to Japan. It has been an honor to serve in challenging assignments around the world for these last 39 years. Many of these assignments have been in countries in crisis, including Haiti. These posts have offered me the opportunity to make real impact on lives. If confirmed, I look forward to working with you and other members of Congress to advance U.S. American interests in Haiti. If confirmed, I would draw upon my existing and new relationships with key U.S., international, and Haitian interlocutors to deepen the bilateral ties, protect my American and Haitian colleagues who work tirelessly at the U.S. mission in Haiti, to continue our work combating insecurity and lawlessness, restoring stability, fostering inclusive democratic governance, bolstering economic growth, and meeting basic humanitarian needs. Of course, an ambassador has no higher responsibility than the safety and security of American citizens abroad, and that will always be my top priority. Haiti faces multiple and competing crises, all of which are exacerbated by gang-led activities in and around Port-au-Prince and other parts of the country. Gang activity has seriously severely impacted the economy and security of the entire country. Gangs also hamper the Haitian government's limited ability to provide public services and the ability of international partners to distribute humanitarian assistance. If confirmed, I'm committed to supporting the Haitian National Police, the HNP, in its efforts to combat gang influence, maintain basic security, and institute community-based prevention efforts. I want to ensure that HMP members receive extensive and practical human rights training to minimize the risk of abuses. In addition to meeting immediate security needs, 
I will work to address the underlying drivers of violence and instability in Haiti through the U.S. strategy to prevent conflict and promote stability. This 10-year plan will improve coordination between U.S., Haitian, and external partners to build inclusive and sustainable foundations for long-term security, stability, and democratic governance. In October 2022, Haitian Prime Minister Ariel Henry requested an international force after gangs blocked access to Haiti's port and main fuel terminal, paralyzing the country, including the cholera response. The United States and our international partners support this request. Whatever, whatever form such a force takes, it can give Haitians the space they need to address the many challenges they face, but it is incumbent on them to do so. Organized criminal group activity continues to exacerbate humanitarian needs and displacement throughout Haiti. Approximately 4.9 million people, nearly half the country's population, will likely require emergency food assistance over the summer. If confirmed, I will work to address with national and international partners the urgent needs of the most vulnerable Haitians. While we fund humanitarian and security efforts to save lives, our collective attention must focus on emerging Haitian solutions to Haiti's political crisis. Since January, there have been no elected officials in Haiti with a current mandate. We have seen support, important steps to enlarge political consensus since then, but there is much to be done to help return the country to democratic order. Neighboring countries through CARICOM are also deeply engaged in promoting a return to uncontested political legitimacy. If confirmed, I will urge all political parties, indeed all players in Haitian society, to come forward, compromise, and create the conditions for a transparent and inclusive electoral process where all parties can compete for Haitian votes. Thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today. I'd be honored to respond to any questions. Thank you. Wow, you landed that on a dime to the second. <laughs> um, no pressure, Mr. O'Brien. Your testimony, please. Thank you, Madam Chairman, Senator Haggerty, Senator Menendez, other members of the committee. I'm honored to have been nominated for this position and that you are considering me for it. Um, I submitted written testimony with some extensive remarks on the region. Um, fundamentally, the job is to promote American security, prosperity, and values by working with, sometimes on, our strongest partners across Europe and Eurasia. That's the global platform that makes Americans more prosperous and secure. I could do this work only with the support of my family, my wife Mary, my children, Jamie and Sean, um, my father-in-law, John O'Donnell, and my sisters, Megan and Nan, and my father, James O'Brien. I was talking to him this morning and he reminded me of a story that captures the themes in my testimony. A few years ago, as my mom was succumbing to the disease that killed her, she said she wanted to go see the place where her father died in World War II. He was a private in the U.S. Army in the Hurtgen Forest. Now, this was the signal event in my mom's life. She went from being, as in her words, uh, a daddy's girl, living a middle-class life in the Bay Area, and then had to move cross-country, kind of live hand-to-mouth in what she called a house of widows with her grandmother, mother, little sisters, and some aunts. And for the first time, she wanted to go here because she knew she was nearing the end. So we drove around Belgium, where her father had written extensively, and Western Germany. 
uh, through as much of the Hurricane Forest as she could manage, and finally to the town that was the object of the, the campaign where he died. And as we walked around, she looked and she said, this place is beautiful. I'd only ever seen it in the black and white photos that showed the battle damage of 1944 and 1945. And I knew it wouldn't be that way, but I couldn't understand how well off and beautiful it is. And then she got very quiet, and then she got mad. And she asked us to drive her out of the town. And as we drove her out of town, she kept saying, those people have normal lives. I didn't get the life that was the normal I thought I was going to get. And I, I just wish they knew. And then we, we visited one of the US military cemeteries nearby, where many of the soldiers killed with uh, my grandfather had been handled to be brought home. She broke down in tears. She said, you know, I'm so proud of what he gave because this area, we drive across borders, nobody stops us. It's well off, it's prosperous. People are peaceful, there's no chance of war. And so I'm so proud of that. You know, I wish I could ask him if he was proud. Now, why do I talk about this? It's not because it's a unique story, but it's been on my mind a lot. Tens of millions of people can tell a similar story. And those of you who've served, as you have, Madam Chair, can tell much more personalized stories about, about the trauma of war. But I think it captures two themes that are very important as we look to go forward. One of them is we're talking about human pain that will live on for decades. What Russia's unleashed in Ukraine is going to stay with us for generations. And the same is true of people who have been surviving conflict left over from the Western Balkans in the 1990s, where I was proud to serve the country, through the Southern Caucasus, where several of you, Chairman Menendez, been very vocal advocates for the victims of those conflicts. And we have to remember that this isn't just geopolitics. It's about humans and how they recover. The second thing we can learn is that we know how to succeed. Senator Haggerty, you asked, what's the plan? What's the way forward? I look forward to working with you on that. But we do have models where we can integrate economies like Ukraine's into more wealthy economies and lift up the people of that region. The same is possible for the people of the Southern Caucasus around the Black Sea and through the Western Balkans. If we handle the next year or two properly, we know how to go from the black and white photos of the war damage of 1945 to the beautiful little town that I took my mother to eight years ago. Now, what do we need in order to do that? I think there are two things I'd love to work with this committee on as we go forward. One is a very strong platform in the EUR Bureau. It's 12,000 people, produces almost two-thirds of the action items the Secretary operates on. They need the resources and support to be great at their job because they're creative and they're wonderful. The second thing is cooperation with the committee, and I look forward to that on both sides of the aisle. Our opponents say America can't be relied on. We'll have an election and we're going to reverse it course. If we all stand together to say America stands for what works, then I know we'll succeed. And I look forward to working with you on that. And I look forward to answering questions. Thank you. Very moving and insightful. Thank you, Mr. O'Brien. Ms. Reyes? Madam Chair Duckworth, Ranking Member Haggerty, and distinguished members of this committee, I am honored for the privilege of speaking with you today as a President's nominee to be the next United States Ambassador to the Republic of Croatia. 
Thank you, Chairman Menendez and Senator Padilla for your kind words of introduction. I'm grateful to President Biden and Secretary Blinken for their confidence in my ability to serve in this role and represent the interests of the American people. If confirmed, serving as ambassador would be my greatest honor. And I pledge to work with this committee and Congress to advance U.S. interests and priorities in Croatia. I'm here today thanks to the love and support of my family and friends. My husband, Tarek Samad, devotes his time to family and finding cures for brain diseases. We're blessed with two boys here with me today, Julian and Alexander. Both are kind and respectful, and they asked me not to cry, and I'm proud to be their mother. I also have my mother and my wise older sister here with me today, and my father watching from above. I'm also thankful to my friends and family, and my friends here and those who are watching uh, from home. I've dedicated my career to international relations, cultural exchanges, and civic engagement in the public, private, and nonprofit spheres. I've come full circle from a young fellow at the United States Embassy in Cairo, where I first was exposed to world diplomacy, to have proudly served on, for over six years on the board of the Woodrow Wilson Center, and now, as of 2022, on the Senate-confirmed board of the U.S. Institute of Peace. I embody the American dream. Followed in the footsteps of my immigrant parents, from them I learned discipline, dedication, hard work, and the endless possibilities of our United States of America. I began my career in Los Angeles, the world's 20th largest economy, and where one of the biggest Croatian diasporas has flourished in San Pedro since the late 1800s. I created the Los Angeles Office of Immigrant Affairs, managed intergovernmental relations, trade, protocol, and championed civic partnerships by establishing international alliances in sister cities with San Salvador, with Ischia, with Beirut, and Yerevan. I also created powerful coalitions in the private sector that improve civil society and strengthen bridges between the United States and Mexico. I'm very proud of spearheading several initiatives to promote open and nonpartisan dialogue between the United States and Mexico. My nonprofit sector experience has cemented my belief that transparency, accountability, and representation safeguard a safe democracy, which we are so fortunate to have in our great nation. Most importantly, I've learned the power to convene and that success is reached by building trustworthy partnerships. If confirmed, I will use these skills to advance United States interests and values in Croatia. Croatia and the United States have strong security, economic, and cultural ties. Croatia embraces transatlantic cooperation and shares our commitment to safeguarding democracy, the rule of law, and human rights. As a close NATO ally, Croatia is a strong advocate of many joint issues, and if confirmed, I will work to deepen our defense and security cooperation and continue to build a bilateral relationship based on our common values. If confirmed, my number one priority will be the safety and security of Americans in Croatia. Second, I will work with Croatia to strengthen transatlantic security in countering Russia's war in Ukraine and malign influence in the region. Third, as Croatia is poised to be an energy exporter, I will work with Croatia to expand its role in advancing energy security and diversification. Fourth, I will leverage our strong partnership to advance EU accession for all Western Balkan countries, which includes promoting respect for democracy and increasing U.S. trade and investment. Fifth, I will deepen the connection between our two nations by increasing cultural exchanges youth-focused initiatives and cooperation between academic institutions to engage scholars, 
students, and teachers. In July 2013, Croatia became the latest member of the European Union. And at the beginning of this year, Croatia adopted the euro and became a member of the border-free Schengen area. If confirmed, my goal is to inform the American private that Croatia is open for U.S. business. I will work with Croatia to help advance joint U.S.-EU priorities and encourage Croatia to help its neighbors pursue their own EU accession aspirations. I believe that accession reforms are as much an economic incentive as a democracy-building project driving prosperity and trade. If confirmed, I will proudly serve the United States of America with empathy, with humility, and with integrity. Thank you very much for the opportunity to appear before you today. I'm happy to answer any of your questions. Thank you, Ms. Reyes. Mr. Bradley? Chairwoman Duckworth, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Haggerty, distinguished members of the committee, I am honored to appear before you today as President Biden's nominee to serve as the U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Guatemala. I would like to thank President Biden and Secretary Blinken for the confidence they have shown in me and the privilege and responsibility to be considered for this position. If confirmed, I look forward to working with you and the Congress more broadly to advance U.S. interests in Guatemala. In over 25 years as a career Foreign Service officer, I have had the honor to represent the United States in Latin America, the Near East, Europe, as well as multiple postings here in Washington, including service at the National Security Council under two presidents. Whether supporting the first democratic elections in post-war Iraq, strengthening the NATO alliance, protecting American citizens in Matamoros, or building partner capabilities in dozens of countries to combat drugs and transnational crime, I have dedicated my career to advancing U.S. security and democratic values. I have also sought to cultivate innovation and apply creative problem solving to the challenges that face us and our partners. I would like to acknowledge my family today. They're here. They have inspired and anchored me on this journey. Following his father's sacrifice in World War II, my father served with distinction as a city manager for 45 years. My mother was a teacher, a church volunteer, and a medical service provider, helping thousands. My partner, a proud immigrant who has stood with me for 25 years through war zones and late night shifts, dedicated years as a DC public school teacher. My sister, who represents all my siblings, is a part of a proud Navy family that is deployed around the world in service to our nation. They have taught me anything is possible with education, determination, and hard work. Finally, I know my uncle Charlie Ward, who served this Senate for 25 years as Chief of Staff to Carl, to Speaker Carl Albert and Senator Bourne, would be so proud to see me appear before you today. In addition to its rich culture, significant world heritage sites, and abundant biodiversity, Guatemala's role in the region and beyond is vital. Guatemala has the largest economy in Central America. It is a critical transit node for people, as well as licit and illicit goods. It has a strong and vibrant civil society. Guatemala's diplomatic ties with Taiwan, support for Israel, and condemnation of Russia's illegal war in Ukraine provide a foundation to advance broader strategic interests. Our geography and strong family bonds between our two countries make our past inextricably shared. We have much to gain from cooperation that supports our security and regional prosperity. Thanks to strong U.S. congressional support, U.S. foreign assistance is advancing that vision. If confirmed, I will be a conscientious steward of U.S. taxpayer money. 
I will endeavor with this committee, the current and incoming Guatemalan government, civil society, and the private sector to address root causes of irregular migration, violence, corruption, poverty, and malnutrition. I will also promote inclusive economic opportunity and a level playing field for U.S. businesses so that Americans and Guatemalans can prosper together. The United States and our international partners are closely monitoring Guatemala's runoff presidential election on August 20th. A leader chosen freely and fairly in accordance with Guatemala's constitution would have the mandate of the Guatemalan people and in turn be an effective partner to the United States. While there are many challenges, Guatemala's close cooperation on key issues provides opportunities. Guatemala is implementing the Los Angeles Declaration on Migration and Protection and cooperating to strengthen reintegration services for return unaccompanied children and families. Guatemala works with U.S. law enforcement to stem violence, combat transnational crime, and convict human traffickers under new laws. If confirmed, I will work to help Guatemala strengthen its own border against illicit trafficking and continue to advance safe, lawful, and humane migration management. I will also support Guatemalan authorities and civil society to strengthen Guatemala's democratic and legal institutions needed to sustain the peace that ended 36 years of conflict. The embassy in Guatemala is one of the largest in the hemisphere with a talented and committed team of U.S. and local staff. If confirmed, I would be honored to lead them. My utmost priority will be to protect the safety and security of the embassy team and of U.S. citizens who live in and visit Guatemala. I will be thrilled to return to this vibrant region and to work to harness our collective strengths to advance U.S. interests. The members of this committee, if, com if confirmed, I look forward to partnering with each of you to further strengthen the U.S.-Guatemala relationship. Thank you for your, the opportunity, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Bradley, and thank all of you for your testimonies. We'll start a period of questions now. First, I have a few questions that speak to the importance that this committee places on responsiveness by all officials in the executive branch. I would ask each of you to provide just a verbal yes or no to this series of questions. First, do you agree to appear before this committee and make officials from your office available to the committee and designated staff when invited? Yes. 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 Do you commit to keeping this committee fully and currently informed about the activities under your purview? Yes. 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 Do you commit to engaging in meaningful consultation while policies are being developed, not just providing notifications after the fact? Yes. 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 Thank you. And finally, do you commit to promptly responding to requests for briefings and information requested by the committee and its designated staff? Yes. 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 Thank you. Now on to other questions. Chairman Menendez will be returning, but I will begin with um, the first line of questions. Mr. O'Brien, you come to this position during the biggest security crisis that Europe has faced in a generation and at a transformative moment in U.S.-Europe relations. While European unity has shown tremendous resilience in the face of Russian aggression, it remains to be seen how it will weather what increasingly appears to be a years-long fight for Ukrainian sovereignty. Mr. O'Brien, in the wake of both the aborted mutiny of the Wagner Group and an ongoing Ukrainian counteroffensive, how do you assess, on the one hand, the ability of Russia to sustain the war effort and maintain the gains it made last year, and on the other, the ability of our NATO allies to maintain the level of support they have been able to provide thus far? Uh, thank you, Madam Chair. Um, first, I look forward to working on these issues with all the members who are interested. 
I think the willingness of our coalition to stay together depends in large part on their sense of the, the solidity and sustainability of American leadership in the effort. And that needs to come from both sides of the, the aisle. Um, I feel at this moment I would much rather be in our coalition supporting Ukraine than on the Russian side largely alone. Um, on Russia, I won't speculate about what is happening within. Secretary Blinken has spoken about the, the difficulty of understanding the internal dynamics, but clearly there has been some fracturing. But from the posture of my current job, uh, managing the sanction side, we do see Russia facing some constraints. It is building its indigenous capacity to create certain weapons, but it is less and less able to source key components from many economies abroad. That puts a limit on its ability to wage a modern war. Um, instead, you see them waging static warfare, attacking civilian targets, including economic targets over the, the last week or so, not, not able to work with modern communications, rapid movement, precision, et cetera, munitions, et cetera. Um, we also see real constraints on the Russian economy. They are, uh, it's a deep economy. It was one of the largest 10 in the world at the start of this war. Um, so they will be able to sustain themselves for quite a while. We don't see a collapse, but they are going to be forced to make difficult choices. Um, they began the war with probably 850 billion US in um, sort of ready cash. Now it's probably about 250. We think there will be some choices facing it over the next several years. In the longer term, we think that its economy will shrink considerably. We expect by the end of the decade, Russia will be 20% smaller than it would have been if it had not waged this war. That makes it a less attractive partner, less able to sustain this conflict at the rate that they, they think that they can. On the other side, our coalition's been remarkably stable. And I think what we're seeing right now is that Russia is committing outrages in order to try to hasten some progress in this war. Um, and instead, it is isolating itself. Its attack on the global food system by taking more than 30 million tons of Ukrainian grain out of the global food um, supply, that strips the, uh, global, the global south of about 24 million tons. That's food for tens of millions of people. And Russia can't replace that. So now it's facing a, a lot more isolation. So I'd rather be where we are. The work that we do to keep people unified is important. And I'll just close with one last um, note. Senator Haggerty talked about the importance of burden sharing, and I completely agree. We're now in a position where U.S. contributions are largely matched by what is coming from the rest of the coalition. That includes specialized contributions. We are 13th in terms of GDP on the amount of security assistance we are providing. So I think we're in a place now where everyone knows they have to put their shoulder to the wheel in support of this effort because we are all going to benefit when Ukraine wins. Thank you. Senator Haggerty. Thank you, Madam Chair. Ms. Reyes, I'd like to start with you. First, to thank you for being here. You've long been a critic of the brutal Chavez Maduro regimes in Venezuela. I agree with you. Um, the Maduro regime today has provided a beachhead for malign activity in the Western Hemisphere for China, for Iran, for Russia. They've extended a lifeline to Cuba. And frankly, they support illicit drug smuggling and money laundering throughout the region. Uh, those concerns are, are, are very significant. I understand that you hold dual citizenship as a Venezuelan citizen and as an American citizen. Uh, 
And if you're confirmed, I want to ask you on the record, for myself and for the committee, will you agree to renounce your Venezuelan citizenship? Well, thank you very much, Senator Haggerty, for that question. Um, yes, I do also renounce, uh, denounce, I should say, um, I would denounce my Venezuelan citizenship, yes. Thank you, I, I appreciate that. One of my concerns uh, has been with this administration's foreign policy and its tendency to moralize on issues that may have great political interest, but aren't directly at our national security and economic interest. And you have served on the board of Planned Parenthood Action Fund. Planned Parenthood Action Fund advocates for some very divisive policies. For example, right. expanding the Supreme Court. Um, taking away the Helms Amendment, doing, dispensing with the Helms Amendment, even advocating for so-called gender-affirming care. Um, as you mentioned in your opening testimony, if you're confirmed to be U.S. Ambassador, it will be your highest honor, but it will also be your great responsibility. And I would like to know, first, do you agree with the positions of Planned Parenthood Action Fund? Um, if confirmed, my sole focus will be representing the American people and the American interests in Croatia. Well, you did a good job of articulating your plans there. I want to encourage you strongly to stick to those plans, please. And please commit to us that you will not use this as a platform in any way to advocate for these other policies. Senator, you have my full assurance that I'm there to represent the American people and the American interest. Great. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to turn my next question, if I might, um, to, to you, Mr. Bradley. Um, I appreciate your recognition of Guatemala's strategic importance to the United States. You, you did a good job of that in your opening statement. Um, as you know, no partner is perfect. Guatemala, though, has long faced difficult challenges of combating public corruption like many, many nations in the Western region, Western Hemisphere, I'm sorry. I'm concerned, however, that the Biden administration has created the perception that it's picking sides in Guatemala's presidential election. And so my question of you is if you'll commit to this committee that you will respect the outcome of Guatemala's August presidential election, regardless of who wins. Yes, Senator, thank you for the question. You have my commitment that I will uh, respect the outcome of the Guatemalan election. Uh, that is, uh, we will work with any uh, government in Guatemala, or as I've discussed, our, our future is shared. And there are so many issues that we need to work on together. Uh, the Guatemalan uh, people are at, a, uh, are at a democratic milestone and that uh, they have an opportunity to, uh, to freely elect a, a leader. We, we, this, this yeah, is, my, my, my point is that we need to respect that and not be perceived as being in any way meddling with it. And so I hope that you will certainly follow up on that perception. I will work with I appreciate government. that. Um, when I met with President Giamatte, as I mentioned earlier, he correctly, I think, identified Guatemala as a choke point for illegal migration from Central America. He talked to me about the national security crisis that presents for his nation, as well as for the United States. And during the previous administration, Guatemala was a key partner for the United States in countering the crisis. They signed an asylum cooperation agreement that helped stem the flow of illegal immigrants. Uh, but since January of 2021, that flow has exploded. And it's created numerous problems, not only here in America, but also in Guatemala. And during our meeting, President Giamatte advised me that technical assistance, training, equipment, that, that that type of activity would be far more effective in his mind to help counter illegal migration flows, illegal drug flows. He felt that that would be far more effective than increasing funding for non-governmental organizations. 
Do you agree with President Giamatti's perspective? Thank you, Senator. I believe that we should use every tool that the embassy has to, uh, to reduce the pressure on our southwest border and to support uh, humane and orderly migration. Uh, Would you have some perspective and, and, on what and we direct, could do? I'm and sorry. direct support to the, to, the, to the government. I'm just interested in your perspective on what we could do to help support strengthening the rule of law in Guatemala and to help them enhance border security and deepen our economic ties. Senator Haggerty, border security has been a focus of my career over 10 years. Uh, through my management of the INL program in Mexico City, uh, we incubated new technologies and innovative approaches for the betterment of both of our countries. And one of those innovations is actually currently being piloted at the border in Matamoros and Brownsville. And uh, I helped to pioneer that with my team. So we worked with CBP, Sandia National Laboratories, to actually show that uh, you can increase dramatically border security while, decre while decreasing wait times for licit travel. And so I understand the interconnected, interdisciplinary nature of the border challenge, and I believe I can bring those lessons learned and the things we're actually piloting now to Guatemala to help them protect their own border. They want to protect their own border too, as, as President G. Mate has said, and that means that Guatemalan border security is our security. Agreed. Thank you, Madam Chair. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Madam Chair, and congratulations to each of our nominees. Thank you for your willingness to continue to serve the country. Um, because I chair the European Affairs Subcommittee, I'm going to focus my questions on you, Ambassador O'Brien, and Ms. Reyes. Um, and Ambassador O'Brien, I, I understand that you were in Tbilisi um, recently to um, look at the sanctions implementation. Can you give us an update on what's happening currently in Georgia with respect to the Russia sanctions? Um, yes, and I look forward to working with you on this issue and other issues in Georgia and around the region. I really appreciate your leadership, and it'll be very important um, as we go forward. Uh, I was in Tbilisi along with my EU and UK counterparts, um, so we presented a united front. I think there's some very encouraging news in that the Georgian customs authorities are taking real steps to restrict the most battlefield-relevant items from being transshipped to Russia. Um, what we want to do is make sure that they have complete control over movements across the Georgian border, whether it's by airfields or by the road border. Um, and so that's continuing work, and there's a lot of assistance being provided to that. But they've been, been good partners at being transparent about what they see. Um, and, the and the question now is, can we get better data uh, going forward? And can we have a clear eye on what's happening with the air flights that have resumed recently um, between Georgia and Russia? So the resumption of those flights, are we concerned that that's going to have um, provide an ability to evade sanctions? Um, I wouldn't say concerned, but it's clearly a possibility. And so we want to make sure we know what is, what is going on those planes on their way back to Russia. And ahead of the elections next year, um, what can be done to engage the Georgian government further to strengthen their institutions? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. So as you know, um, the U.S. Uh, designated a set of judges who were I think, notorious within Georgia for um, 
uh, control of the judicial system. This is one of the first requirements for Georgia to make progress toward its European perspective. Um, so we're working closely with the European Union and have made clear to the Georgian government that improvements on the appointment, disciplining, and, and monitoring of judges is a key area uh, for making progress. More broadly, um, I met uh, this week with a group of civil society activists from Georgia. It's one of the most vibrant um, uh, groups in the world. I'm sure you all saw the same set of people. Um, they make they embody the commitment of the Georgian people. More than 90% of the Georgian people say they want to be part of Europe. There's no polarization on that. And what has to happen is the group of economic interests behind the government need to be made aware that the reforms necessary to join Europe are in fact where the country is moving. So we're working with our European colleagues to make clear that the conditions they have set are also reflected in our assistance and in our conditions, and that we need to see progress on these over the next months. The fall will be critical because of the report that will come from the European Council. That's a mixed report, but has some encouraging news in there. Um, I want to go move to the Balkans now because, as um, you pointed out, you did a lot of work in Bosnia Herzegovina in particular. And I wonder if, given um, Milorand Dodik's increased um, level of rhetoric against um, a united country, are we concerned that that will endanger the renewal of U4 um, at the United Nations? And what more can we do to address um, what Dodik is doing? I think, um, and this is something we should uh, discuss in another setting as mm -hmm. well, but I, um, Milorad Dodik controls the government in a part of Bosnia. Um, he wants to control the resources and all of the patronage that flow from those resources in that area. So we have the ability to reduce his control over the money. That is partly what is causing him to, to challenge the state processes. I think with our European colleagues, with the high representative for Dayton implementation, um, we are making clear to him that what he's doing is unacceptable. Um, that there will be clear consequences for it and that he needs to start stepping back from these, these postures. The military force that is there is critical for security. I think we have made clear throughout that it is there under UFOR or as NATO. It's there in some capacity no matter what, um, and, and its presence is essential. Thank you. Madam Chair, can I ask one more question of Ms. Reyes? Um, Croatia is one of the... Or, is one of three constituent peoples in Bosnia and Herzegovina. And Croatia plays an important role, I think, in sustaining peace in the country. Can you discuss how you would work with the Croatian government to encourage uh, a continued positive force in terms of what happens in Bosnia-Herzegovina? Well, I appreciate that question, Senator. Um, the U.S. remains committed, as you know, to the sovereignty and inter 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 territorial integrity of Bosnia and Herzegovina, and obviously to the Dayton Accord framework of one country, two entities, and three constituencies. And if confirmed, I will work with the Croatian government to engage Bosnian Croats and their counterparts to support govern their governance reform. So, you know, I would be that conduit between the Croatian government and the Croats in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Chair. 
Thank you, Senator Kane. Thank you, Madam Chair, Mr. Bradley. Um, I am uh, uh, the chair of the America Subcommittee here, and I'm. What, while Guatemala has been a really important partner for us for a long time, I've also been very disappointed in recent years with uh, the uh, efforts to chase anti-corruption prosecutors out of the country. Um, judges who have focused on corruption have been targeted. Uh, journalists have been targeted. A number of them uh, now live in Virginia. They would rather be back in Guatemala. I was even visiting with some last night. And so I think the uh, work of the embassy, the work of the ambassador, should you be confirmed that I'm confident you will be uh, upholding democracy and anti-corruption standards is going to be a really important thing. For I'm sure most know that we're uh, in the, the last weeks of a runoff election for president. Uh, the two candidates who prevailed in the first round, there was an effort by the existing government to block one of the two successful candidates from moving forward in the election. Uh, it's really important. We, we don't have a favorite in this, but it's really important that Guatemala not uh, disable a democracy from working. My understanding is the United States is going to host both of the, the two finalist candidates here uh, to show that we want to continue to work with whoever the Guatemalan people pick as its next president. But I just really hope, whether it's press freedom or anti-corruption efforts or support for NGOs, Guatemala passed an NGO registration law, which we see happening in other nations like Nicaragua, which force NGOs to register or be dissolved. That registration is often a precursor to a shrinking of civilian space. I hope I have your commitment from your background. I suspect I do that should you be confirmed, you'll work very, very hard to encourage progress in these important human rights areas. Absolutely, Senator, you have my commitment. Uh, and thank you for your voice and the role of this committee in the bipartisan, bicameral statement on the election issue uh, that, uh, with, with Chairman McCall. Uh, I've worked on democracy and human rights for a long time. I, I, I helped uh, set up some of the first elections in, in Iraq, and I, I know firsthand how important it is that the citizenry believe in the election process, that they, that they have faith in the results and that they have the right to choose their preferred candidate under the law. And so, Senator, you absolutely have my commitment to do that. And as, in terms of the anti-corruption side of the House, um, I've, if confirmed, I support the use of all of the tools that Congress has provided us uh, to, to, hold anti, to hold corrupt actors accountable, whether that's the Section 353 of uh, the Engle list or uh, Section 7031C, for visa restrictions or financial sanctions as appropriate. Uh, I will use Excellent. all of those. Thank Excellent, you. thank you. Um, Ambassador Hankins, thank you for your willingness to serve. This, the service to Haiti is gonna be one of the toughest challenges in the world right now. Uh, and you've, you've served in Haiti before, so you, you go in with you know, a love for the country and a love for the Haitian people and understanding for, for some of the challenges um, as, as we, we're gonna have a hearing in our committee tomorrow on Haiti where Secretary Nichols and others will be here on behalf of the administration and others who care a lot about uh, Haiti. Um, the, the consensus seems to be, as I travel in the region, that security is the first priority, but it's very difficult to assemble a security initiative unless a nation has stepped forward to lead it. And there's a whole lot of reasons why the nations that might be asked to lead it, legitimate reasons why they've been reluctant. The United States, we have a history with Haiti that might not make us the most 
credible leader. France has a history that might not make it the most credible leader. Dominican Republic should play a role. They couldn't be the most credible leader. Uh, we all need to be involved, but as of yet, we've not found the right uh, lead uh, nation uh, to help us provide security assistance. And, and that's a big, big issue that would be not just the ambassador's work, but I know that's something you would focus on. Let me ask you this, from your experience in living in Haiti and then you're following it to now, how much of a concern in the Haitian security situation has been the extent of arms trafficking of guns from the United States that are, that are you know, purchased illegally, often through straw purchases, and then sold in Haiti to kind of back up these gangs and, and escalate violence? Well, thank you very much, Senator, and you're correct. The flow of weapons going into Haiti allows situation where often then the criminal gangs are better armed, um, outnumbered than the Haitian National Police. The most recent session of the Security Council asked the Secretary General to outline three options, more support to the Haitian National Police, a multinational force outside of the UN structure, or a new uh, UN peacekeeping mission. And we've been working with a number of countries to see if somebody would lead or participate. Those negotiations, those discussions are ongoing to support the Secretary General's effort. Clearly what we see in this situation is right now the security situation blocks progress, whether it's on humanitarian or political. To your question, most recently this institution passed the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, which then gave more teeth to the um, trafficking in weapons, and many of these weapons do come. We've seen Department of Justice has now created a new special prosecutor, prosecutor looking at uh, weapons uh, trafficking uh, towards the Caribbean. So you've in fact given us one of the tools that can help us work with that. Uh, we look at trafficking in both directions, whether it be trafficking of, of human beings to the United States, but clearly there is a problem with trafficking of weapons from the United States to Haiti. I, I've, I've exceeded my time, but if I could just say, Madam Chair, I, I asked the question about arms because sometimes when we see a situation, particularly in our hemisphere, where there's violence or chaos, we kind of, you know, wonder, well, what, why do we need to get involved in this? Why, why, do, why does the United States need to be a problem solver in Haiti? Or why are folks from Central America, you know, coming to our shores as if we are not connected to the misery in those countries. Um, and uh, there is a pretty significant connection, uh, whether it's U.S. arms trafficking into Haiti that increase violence, or whether it's the demand for illegal drugs in the United States that send cash and guns south that turn neighborhoods in Honduras and Guatemala or Salvador into dangerous places that people then want to flee. Um, we often find that our miseries are very connected and, and that makes the work of this committee and the, and the work of Congress in uh, diplomacy and stronger international relations so very important. It's not just about others. It's about others and the lives they lead, which are often very connected to some of the challenges we ourselves have. Thank you, and I yield back. Senator Van Hollen. Uh, thank you, Madam Chair. Congratulations to all of you on your, your nominations. Uh, Ambassador O'Brien, a couple questions about Turkey. Uh, I think uh, all of us uh, here in the Senate were pleased to see President Erdogan finally drop his opposition uh, to Sweden's entry 
into NATO, although we're still monitoring the situation closely uh, regarding the ratification. Uh, but beyond uh, the fact that uh, President Erdogan was blocking Turkey's entry, uh, excuse me, Sweden's entry into NATO, uh, a number of set other concerns. Uh, did you see a report last Friday about uh, Turkish F-16s violating Greek airspace? Uh, no. There, was a, there were some reports just in trying to verify them, but uh, last Thursday or Friday about uh, an incursion, which was a little surprising since there's been a period of relative quiet and calm. Uh, so we would like to get back from I, I will look into that. this and come back right. to you with what I find. I mean, you would, you would agree, would you not, that um, as a NATO ally, Turkey should not be using its F-16s to violate the airspace of Greece or any other NATO ally, right? Yes, and I mean, as you pointed out, I think we're at a moment when the, the two leaders met just last month. They've set up a regular cycle of their meetings, the foreign ministers. I know their advisors are often in contact. So I think we're in a place where the two governments can manage the relationship well. But uh, let me look into this incident and come back to you. Yeah, no, I'm, I've been also uh, heartened by some of the, the change there. Um, a lot less so with respect to uh, Turkey's conduct vis-a-vis -vis our Syrian Kurdish allies, um, which has been another concern many of us have voiced for a long time. Uh, you would agree, would you not, that the Syrian Kurds were really the tip of our spear in the fight against ISIS? Uh, and I know um, a number of uh, my colleagues have, not on this panel but elsewhere, were intimately involved in that, so yes. Yes, indeed. And, you know, ISIS is... Um, you know, as a, as a large-scale institution, it's clearly been somewhat quashed, but it's not altogether gone. There was, I'm just reading, U.S. airstrike targets ISIS leader in eastern Syria. This was uh, July 9th, uh, so just a little while ago. Uh, and yet, uh, Turkey continues to target uh, Syrian Kurdish leaders um, who are with us in the fight against ISIS. Uh, you would agree, would you not, that it's against... U.S. national security interests for Turkey to be targeting our Syrian Kurdish allies. Uh, yes, and I think this is a topic that will be a regular focus of discussion, and I'll look forward to working with you as well to make sure that y you see where we are going on the issues. Good. Well, I appreciate that because, um, you know, obviously Turkey's requested a, a fresh round of upgraded uh, F-16s, and, you know, we're, again, watching the ratification of uh, Sweden's admission into NATO by, by Turkey. Uh, but these other issues are really important. And it seems to me there are only two ways to get at them. Or one is to get assurances, the US government getting assurances from Turkey that it will not use these F-16s in violation of the airspace of Greece or any NATO, other, NATO ally, and that they won't use them to attack our Syrian Kurdish partners. Would you agree those are reasonable requests to make of I, I think, and I, I think, Senator, the, the um, clarity of views coming from the Congress has been very helpful as we navigate these issues with our, our Turkish allies. Um, so I, I think if we can continue in communication on this, we can make sure that the points are raised. I, I appreciate that because um, I think you'll continue to see that uh, reinforcement from, from uh, the, the Congress. Um, and, and there are two ways to do it. Uh, I'd like to see both ways. One is some 
assurances from Turkey in some form. The other, of course, is the, the Biden administration giving members of Congress assurances that if Turkey were to violate those conditions, that there would be consequences. So let's find a way to keep working yeah, on let's, this let's, together. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Ambassador Hankins, um, it, it, let me just follow up briefly on Senator Kane's question. I want to thank Senator Kane for his long time and deep interest, um, both in Haiti and um, Central and, and Latin America more broadly. Uh, the, I, I know one of you mentioned a couple countries we'd been approaching regarding uh, providing a role as some kind of guarantor or support uh, in Haiti. One of them I know was Canada. Uh, are those conversations still ongoing, or is, um, uh, what, is, what is your sense of where we are there? Yeah, thank you, Senator. I know we've approached some of the larger countries that would have the normal military capability and previous history with uh, Haiti that could be logical players. So far, none of them have come forward wanting to be the lead. Doesn't mean they might not support some future operation, but not wanting to be the lead for their own domestic reasons. Uh, we do look far uh, afield. There are a number of countries that have very strong histories in international peacekeeping, whether they be in Asia or Africa. We're looking at some of those op options and also looking at what kind of support the United States would have to uh, provide if you find a country willing to lead that may not necessarily have the wherewithal to do that. It is not yet determined on which option one might go with. We noted in the most recent Security Council resolution, it was unanimous, so both Russia and China were willing to at least discuss the possibility of a peacekeeping operation, which previously wasn't, uh, wasn't understood. Uh, but I think it is clear without some kind of international force, it is very difficult to look at how Haitians can regain control of their country in the short term. I appreciate that. Look, it's a, it's a desperate situation, which has dragged on for a long, long time. And um, we look forward to working with you, um, if confirmed, uh, on, on these issues. And I, I do support the nominations of this, in, this entire impressive roster. So uh, look forward Thank to working with you. Center. Thank you. Chairman Menendez. Thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, Ambassador Hankins, uh, let me... Uh, uh, ask you a few questions because I, I think we uh, have really not engaged in Haiti the way we need to. I had the Secretary General of the United Nations in a meeting with me and I said to him, unless we have a multinational force to ultimately provide for security, we cannot do all the rest. We cannot have a political development unless there's security. We cannot make economic development which Haiti desperately needs unless we have security. Uh, we, and we can't have security for so long as the gangs are the ones controlling, as well as the fact that the elite that uses the gangs to perpetuate their interests. So uh, uh, I d I'd just like to get your sense. I may have missed it because I had a markup in the Finance Committee, but is, is that something that, am I off base here? Is, is that something we're in comedy with? Uh, what can you speak, speak to me on that? Haiti is by its nature, it's a complicated country where lots of crises, one adjust, affects everyone else. We have a very dedicated team and we have a great deal of, whether it be from the Senate, the House, or from the administration, a lot of engagement, but it is hard to find good lasting solutions. I agree with you, Senator, that without 
some kind of force, whether that be a multinational force or a UN peacekeeping mission. It is very difficult for basic human security to be guaranteed, for the Haitians to have the space they need to proceed on political resolution, uh, or to ensure the security of Haitians as well as the many American citizens who live in Haiti. I'd be engaged with all partners, uh, whether it be then major countries like Canada and France, which have long-lasting history, but as well with the bordering countries, whether it be Dominican Republic, Jamaica, the countries that also see the impact of the instability in terms of irregular migration for their countries. Yeah, I, and that's a challenge. I was with the president of the Dominican Republic, and he said to me, you know, we're trying to be good neighbors. But when 50 or 60 percent of the hospital beds in the maternity ward are delivering babies of Haitian mothers, and Dominican mothers can't get in to go ahead and deliver their babies, that's a problem. Uh, and that's one of the many dimensional elements of the Haiti problem. Next thing is we'll see people uh, on boats to the shores of the United States. We talk about migration. So this is a, a, a cauldron ready to explode. And I am, I, I am hopeful that your presence there will help us find a pathway forward. On a specific thing, I introduced bipartisan legislation, Haiti Criminal Collusion and Transparency Act, uh, which has the support of uh, over a dozen Haitian civil society diaspora groups, to expose the links between the elites and the Haitian gangs and sponsors, them, and sponsors and target them for economic sanctions and visa restrictions. Is that something I can get your commitment to work with us on, if you are confirmed? No, absolutely, sir. Okay. Uh, so again, it's another tool it gives us in our diplomacy of dealing with then corrupt links between political and gangs. I don't have my experience on the ground to understand whether the causality is politicians who control criminal gangs or criminal gangs that control politicians, but obviously we see that there are linkages between the two. Uh, so it's important to break those linkages uh, so that violence is not used as a way of avoiding a political and social process. Thank you. Uh Mr. O'Brien, uh, I want to echo uh, what Senator Van Hollen said about uh, our, the administration's consideration of F-16s to Turkey. It's not surprising. Sweden still hasn't received a vote from Turkey, even though Erdogan said, yes, okay, Sweden should be in. He could have called the parliament. He could have had the vote. He hasn't had it. And, uh, you know, we, we cannot have belligerence in the eastern Mediterranean. We have an, a, another NATO ally, Greece, for which we not only have Suda Bay longstanding, but we have Alexandropoli, which has become uh, the Suda Bay of the North, and a major energy center, uh, and, a ho and a NATO uh, center for trans, uh, transshipment. Now, how does it work for us to have one NATO ally be belligerent to another and somehow sell them uh, uh, you know, F-16. So I hope that this will be one of the things that, if this is still pending upon your confirmation, that you will be focused on. I hope that we can uh, be uh, an advocate for greater stability in the Eastern Mediterranean uh, because it's incredibly important. I hope that we will work on the three plus one process in a way that will strengthen the relationships between Israel, Cyprus, Greece, and the United States. Um, absolutely. And um Mr. Chairman, I, I think the clear messages coming from this committee are incredibly helpful 
as we try to, to navigate through the relation. And I have one specific thing, and then I'll, I'll submit the rest of my questions in writing uh, so that the committee can move on. Uh, on June the 20th, the Albanian government raided Camp Ashraf III, where they have been hosting Iranian refugees for many years. I, I salute the Albanians for doing that. However, uh, there, there was a recent raid, uh, and there are differing accounts. It seems that one person died during or after the raid, and that both residents of the camp and police officers were injured. Uh, can you commit to advocating for the fundamental rights and freedoms of the residents of Camp Ashraf? Uh, absolutely. Uh, and it's, impor it's important because if you, if you seek refuge, you ultimately have to be in a position to know that that refuge is secure. Uh, and we moved uh, these residents uh, uh, into Camp Ashraf uh, from their previous location. Uh, and I support the, the, uh, I appreciate the Albanians having made that possible. We need a continuing guarantee of security. Um, I join you in uh, the appreciation of Albania, which has been a very important place of refuge for a number of um, people seeking asylum. I'll look into this incident. Uh, I'm very sorry for the family of the person who died. I'll report to you what I find out. Oh, thank you. And we'll work together thank going you. forward. I'll submit the rest of my questions for the record. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we're going to begin a, a second round of questions. I just have another additional question. And I know Senator Haggerty has indicated he wants to do a little follow-up as well. Um, uh, with that, uh, Mr. O'Brien, the NATO pivot towards a more cautious approach to the PRC in recent years has been a welcome change. At the same time, we've seen a reluctance by some partners to set up a more formal presence in the Indo-Pacific. How do you assess Europe's current postures towards Asia and the PRC in particular? And what role should our Indo-Pacific strat strategy play into our outreach to our European allies? Um, thank you for the question. And uh, obviously, it's an essay question in itself. I, I think our, a lot of our work over the last year or two, some of which I've seen in the sanctions discussion, ha has led to a convergence of views between our European allies and ourselves about the importance of having a united approach to to China. The, um, I think at the recent Vilnius summit, there were several of our most important Asian allies there and were as honored guests. Um, the, although some of the formal mechanisms may not have been established, I think what we are on now is a track for great communication and security channels. Um, as well, the work that's being done um, across the Indo-Pacific to beef up the, the US presence and our allied presence, I think sends a very strong message that um, we are working to create a global rule-abiding community. Um, the goal of that community is security and prosperity for our citizens as well as the citizens of our partners. So it is an ongoing, very important topic. We'll keep working it in every channel that we have. Uh, thank you. Senator Haggerty? If I might, Madam Chair, can stay on this topic. I appreciate your raising it, but I'd like to come to the other side of it, too. Uh, and I share your concerns about uh, having deeper involvement in the Indo-Pacific and anything that we can do to be helpful and supportive there. Mr. O'Brien, we want to do that. I would also be very interested in your perspective on how we work toward a unified approach with our allies in the EU to push back against the intellectual property theft, the forced technology transfer, and basically the predatory behavior of China as they look at the EU. The EU is wide open and vulnerable 
And I feel like there's much more that we could be doing together. I'd be interested in your thoughts on how we move forward there. Yeah, uh, thank you for that. And thank you for the intellectual leadership on the issues. The, um, I know Undersecretary Fernandez testified this morning, I believe Chairman Menendez, you were, you were there, that about the measures we are taking to um, enhance our economic resilience along with our partners on issues like critical minerals, broader supply chains, um, also to address Chinese coercion. So where China attempted to, um, to intimidate Lithuania, we were able to step in and provide alternative financing find markets for Lithuanian goods um, and, and otherwise work to demonstrate that coherence within our alliance lets each one of us stand up for what we know to be right. We have active discussions with our European colleagues and one point on which I really look forward to working with the committee is through the mechanisms that have been established, like the Trade and Technology Council, the um, EU-US dialogue. Those sound like boring bureaucratic measures, but they are where we are going to start establishing the rules of the road for technologies like artificial intelligence, like many of the technologies emerging from the energy transition, biomedical innovation. These are the things that will help make our people richer over the next generation. We need to do those in a way that's aligned with our European allies, not allow China to set the rules of the road, not allow China to steal the technology. By laying this groundwork together now, we'll be much better suited for, for addressing the challenges. In the I would just generation. interject that our national security interests need to be first and foremost in your mind as you think about this Absolutely. sort of cooperative approach. And I want to key off of something that you said about China's coercion, turning back to you, Mr. Bradley. Uh, as you know, Guatemala remains an ally of Taiwan. They're under a great deal of pressure from the CCP as a result of that. I've met on multiple occasions with the U.S. Guatemala Business Council. They would love to work with us on nearshoring opportunities, mm -hmm. ways to make our supply chains more secure. And I think that from the perspective of an American businessman, which is what I've done my entire life before coming here, um, it should be a great opportunity for us as well to de-risk our supply chains and bring them closer to home. I, I'm, I'm fighting hard to get every job I can back to Tennessee. Please understand that. But to the extent they don't come back to Tennessee, partnering with countries like Guatemala with businesses there should be a great opportunity. I, I, I look forward to introducing you to some of the people that I've met. McKinsey's done a great study there uh, talking about where these opportunities exist, but I see a, a huge opportunity there and I'd be interested in your thoughts. Thank you, Senator, for your question and, and uh, offering to uh, connect me to some of your, your colleagues. Uh, Taiwan has been a reliable partner to Guatemala and, and since 1933, and Guatemalan people have, have uh, have have had sustainable benefits because of it. Uh, so I'll certainly want to raise uh, that the, with the incoming administration, whether that's with Sandra Torres of the UNE party or Bernardo Revelo of the Samia party, that uh, it is very important that, that they maintain this close relationship with Taiwan. And uh, there's representation of the ta uh, Taiwanese in Guatemala. And I look forward to working with the colleagues there as well on these ideas that will not only potentially uh, provide opportunities to U.S. businesses, but also uh, help us provide job opportunities and uh, uh, attack some of the root causes of, of irregular migration that puts the pressure on our border. Thank you. Well, thank you again to all the nominees for your willingness to serve and your answers today. 
The record for this hearing will remain open until close of business on Thursday, July 27th, 2023. Please ensure that questions for the record are submitted by no later than close of business Thursday. With that, the hearing is adjourned.